As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please to pray with me. Father in heaven, this is your word before us. I pray that we would listen well, that we would think clearly, and that by your spirit you would enable us not only to understand but to believe and to rest our all on our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, that's why we we really read, that's why we listen, that's why we think of these things, that faith in him might increase so that we can live then in a way that shows your worth, that magnifies the Lord. And so this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Luke and chapter 1. Gospel according to Luke chapter 1, I want to read... Verses 46 to 55. Luke chapter 1, please. Hear the word of God. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. And he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now we've been looking at this Magnificat, this Mary's song, the last couple of weeks. And here we are again looking at it. We're doing that because we want to see Mary's response to the incarnation. That is, Mary's response to the coming of Jesus. Obviously, she had a front row seat. Obviously, there she was to behold this one, who was to come. But she knew that it was more than just about her and what was happening to her. She knew the place this was really in what we would call redemptive history. That is how God will save his people from their sins. And so what we want to see is her response to this so that we'll know how to respond as well and to check ourselves to make sure we're responding to this incarnation, the coming of Jesus Rightly, all right? So that's why we're looking at... And, and, and the reason we need to, obviously, this is important. If this is really true, if God took on flesh and dwelt among us, then, then we need to know about this and, and we need to believe it. If it's true, we believe that it is. And so we, it's important to us. And secondly, we realize that in the culture in which we live, Christmas can be deceptive, right? The culture in which we live, Christ, Christmas can be deceptive because our culture has commandeered, or at least tried to, commandeer Christmas. I changed the name from Christmas to holiday, right? And, and, and really taken much of our symbols and, 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 and forms and all of that and, and stressed, which isn't a bad stress, stressed this notion of peace on earth and goodwill among men. Now, the dilemma that our culture faces is that it doesn't believe in Jesus as we understand him to be, as God in the flesh, as God with us, 
as this one who's come to save his people from their sins. And so in commandeering this Christmas season, then Jesus and the story of his birth, if you will, has become a bit of a fable, a bit of a myth, but, but a good one in our culture's eyes. Good in the sense that it causes us each year to stop and to think about peace on earth and goodwill among men because we realize as a culture that we, we desire to, to, to live in a peaceful world. We desire to live in a world where there's peace. We desire to live in a world, we think it's good, if you will, to live in a world still where there's goodwill, honor, love among people. And that's a, a good thing, the world says. So, so, so this story of Jesus helps us. Because here we have a man, not a real man, but, but, but an idealized man, a mythical figure, if you will, this Jesus, who, who, was, who we say was born, all right, and he lived a life of love and compassion and kindness and forgiveness, and he taught that way as well. And, and so, if we can just grab hold of that teaching, that example, that spirit, if you will, of this figure, Jesus, if we grab a hold of that in our lives, then you see, peace will come to us, and, and because we'll be living in love to each other, there'll be goodwill among human beings, and, and that's a good thing. Now, like all myths, our culture will tell us, that there are fanciful elements in this story. There's this virgin birth notion, and that's just to identify our hero, so we know who he really is, and, and so, so our eyes are upon him. And, and then, there's, then there, there's these miracles that he does. But, but, but really, if we can only grab a hold of those miracles from this mythical, idealized figure, Jesus, if we grab a hold of those miracles, we can see that just like when he fed 5,000 people with just a little bit of food, if we'd only share what we have, then, then there'd be peace on earth and goodwill among us. Do you see, if we could only do that, then we'd have sufficient. And, and these miracles of the blind being able to see and the, and the deaf being able to, re, to, to, to hear and the lame being able to walk, oh, if we grab a hold of that and realize if we can have compassion to one another, then look at the great things that can take place in the world in which we live. We need to, we need to be like this mythical figure, Jesus. And, and his tragic death, in this story, it shows us how, how important all of this is, that, that he would be willing to sacrifice himself for the good of others. We need to have that same kind of spirit to know that if we sacrifice ourselves for the good of others, then we'll find this great peace on earth. And the resurrection story that's added to this account just, just reminds us and, and says that there really is a better way, there really is a better world that is to come. If only we'd grab a hold of this this Jesus, the spirit of Jesus, his teaching, this example from this story. And then you see our culture says each year what we need to do is be inspired by this story of Jesus. And so we can hang on to these things, you see. Because we all want peace on earth. And we all think that we should be more loving. So, so each year we, we think about these things. We give to the poor. Our families gather. We give gifts to each other. And, and we, we show this sort of goodwill. We, we kind of live it out, whether it's sincere or not. We live it out during these holiday days, if you will. Now, of course, Luke, who lays this out for us, would have none of this. He, he begins his gospel like this. He says, inasmuch... As many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. This is chapter 1, verse 1. Just as those who, were, who, who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seems good to me also, having followed all the things closely for some time past, 
to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In other words, Luke says, listen, I've done my research. I've talked to people. uh, There are eyewitnesses that I know, and and I'm laying this out for you. This is really true. This is an event. This really happened in in real life. This Jesus person, as I've laid it out for you, is, is is really what's true about him. So what everyone who knows what they're talking about, everyone who saw it, this is what they're reporting to me, and so this is what I'm laying out for you. So all of these things are are really true. This Jesus is a real person. This virgin birth is a real thing. These miracles really did happen. This death really did take place. This resurrection really did take place. So, so we say, no, this isn't a mythical figure. This is really true. And you see where our culture deviates from the truth of Christmas, if you will, is that they think that we're the solution to the problem if only we could. If we would do this, or we would do that, then there would be peace on earth. But you see, this true account of the true Jesus says that we're not the solution. We're the problem. And Jesus has come to solve the problem. We need someone from the outside. We need God in the flesh to come and do this for us because we can't. There's an old, called it a hymn. It's called a hymn. I wouldn't call it, well, it's a hymn form, I suppose, musically. But I don't want us to be confused. I think it's a Christian hymn. Anyway, the title of it is, Let There Be Peace on Earth. Many of you might have sung that around a campfire, swaying back and forth at some camp somewhere. Put it out of your mind. It's a bad song. Because it's simply wrong. Now the sentiment, all right, but it goes, let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. Really? Now, not a point of it. We're trying to say, okay, but, 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 but really, that, that, that's a contrary, really, to the gospel. The gospel is, let there be peace on earth, and it must begin with Christ. If it could begin with me, he wouldn't have needed to come, you see. And so, we should say, let there be peace on earth through our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know how you get that to rhyme. But, but, but that would be the song, you see. It's through him, not through us. We are actually, we are actually the, the problem here, not uh, the solution here. And so you see, we must rely upon him. And so as Mary lays this out, she says, what, what we really need is to behold it. We need to behold the solution. We need to see it. It's revealed to us. It comes to us through Jesus. So she says, in order for there to be peace on earth, really, what we need to do is magnify the Lord. We really need to see him. We really need to rejoice in the God who is this one who saves us. And Mary would know, being a Jewess, she would know, because she's a Jewish woman, she would know because of the Hebrew scripture what it means to be rescued. She would know the history of her people and she would know that deliverance, salvation, all points back to the Exodus, all points back to when her people were enslaved in Egypt and could do absolutely nothing about that. They couldn't break that slavery at all. They were too weak. They weren't powerful. They didn't have what was necessary in order to break free from the rule of the Egyptians. Someone from outside had to come in, a deliverer from outside had to come in, a savior from outside had to come in who could do that. And the savior who came to them was known as Moses, if you will, that deliverer, that rescuer. He came and 
obviously by the power of God rescued them. So when she says, this is God, my savior, God will come and rescue us. We can't, he must. And so that's the very point you see of Christmas. And so we need to make sure that we get it, that we're not confused by the culture in which we live, that we're not duped by our culture that tells us that we can really do this. If only we were inspired enough, if only we had a good enough example, if we'd only we'd grab a hold of the spirit of even this Jesus. No, 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 no. The first point for us is to realize that we're the problem and that we can't. That's why, need I remind us, that we always confess when we gather together. It's the recognition that we're the problem, that Christ is a solution, and we need to review that and review that and review that all the time so as not to be caught up in the world in which we live which says we can and we are the solution. We're simply, we're simply not, you see. And, and to, to make that clear, as, as Mary's working through this, notice verse um, 51 She says, he has shown strength with his arm for he's scattered the prouds in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones. And then in the end of verse 53, and the rich he has sent away empty. So basically in Mary's song, what she's saying is that that, that the solution to our problem from God is that he dismisses our best thoughts, our wisdom. He dismisses our great power. And he dismisses our great wealth. He destroys it really. He says, this isn't going to solve your problem. Your wisdom, your power, your riches. And so he destroys really or scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He brings down the mighty from their thrones. And the rich, he dismisses, he sends them away. Notice this, verse 51. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He says, your best Thinking your best wisdom will not solve this problem. Your best wisdom will not bring peace on earth. Your best wisdom will not bring goodwill among people. And is there any really real doubt about that? Especially after the events of this last week in Connecticut. Human beings are capable of such things. Now, many just simply write off these events as, as, as isolated events or certain individuals. And yes, we can do that. And we hope in some measure that's true. But let's face it. These are human beings who do these horrendous acts. And we've seen them over and over and over and over again in history. And there seems to be no end to them. There isn't simply peace on earth. Our best thoughts, education, more security, our best plans continues on and on and on. So the question is, how is this going to come? And God says, no, no, I'm going to break your best plans. Because no one will thought of this 
solution. Romans chapter 1 speaks to us in our sinfulness. Verse 18, the apostle writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He says, that's really the problem, you see. It isn't an intellectual problem. It isn't that we're not smart. It's a moral problem. It's that we take that which is true and we suppress it. We say no to it. And the truth is that we need God. The truth is that, that God is and we're to submit to him. That's the very truth of it, you see. We say, no, 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 not that. That can't be right. That can't be the way. Not not that. So he says we suppress that truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in which things have been made. So they're without excuse. For, all they, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, he says this, we suppress this truth as human beings and we said we're autonomous. We can go our own way. We can define what life really is on our own and we can direct ourselves and we'll find joy in that. We'll find delight in that. And he says, no, 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 you see, once you do that, once you separate yourself from God, then you lose real wisdom that is a real understanding of life. Though you may be brilliant, you may be smart, you'll lose this wisdom of what life really is, you see, when you go your own way. And then notice what happens. Claiming to be wise, you become like like a fool. I loved, I loved it when my children, when they were little, they all did this one time or another. They were two or three years old when they would sort of climb in the front seat of the car when the car wasn't running, climb in the front seat of the car, get behind the steering wheel, and they actually thought they were driving. Now, they weren't, but it was cute when they were three. But when they were 20, if they had done that, that would not have been cute anymore. That would have been disturbing if they were behind the wheel thinking they were driving when they were not. And you see, we think we're driving this thing. We think as human beings, we really know what, we know what we're doing. And we have the wisdom and the power and all the resources we need to make this work. And there we are, two-year-olds behind the wheel in the eyes of God. And we think we're wise. And God says, I don't think you get it. Notice what happens. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts and to impurity, the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. You see, I think we're honoring our bodies by the lives that we live And he says, no, 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 you're you're not honoring your bodies at all. You're actually disgracing them. So God gave them up to dishonorable passions. The women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. 
The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And you see, we live in a culture that glorifies sexual immorality. And we think we're advancing. And God says, you don't see it. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, discontentedness really with what they had, malice, envy because of what others had. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You see, that's what happens. When we disregard God, when we go on in our own sinfulness, we think we're autonomous. And that, you see, is the sin of it. And, and so, so God says, you can't, you aren't the solution. If, if I allow you to go on your own way, you see, because of the sinfulness within you, it just gets worse. It doesn't get better. So I must come and bring peace and be peace, you see. And thus he sh- scatters the wisdom, if you will, of the wise. I, I read as our, in the midst of our service this morning, I read this passage from 1 Corinthians in chapter 1 where Paul writes, For the, cro- the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. You see, the world looks on the cross and goes, A dead Messiah, Really? Who needs that? Now we've kind of morphed that really in, into this sense of, of living this idealized life, living this life of love is worth dying for and all of that. So we hear from our culture. But, 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 but that's just wrong, really. This, this death of Jesus came first as a manifestation of the evil in the world to turn against Jesus. You see, isn't it amazing that when the Son of God showed up on earth, the wisest ones, the ones who should have been able to recognize him, didn't. One of the reasons I love this third Sunday of Advent is that every time I begin during the beginning of the week and I begin to think about the shepherds, I smile. And I think, way to go, God. You know, you, you, you made the announcement of the coming of Jesus to these ones who were despised by their fellow men. You see, shepherds weren't well liked. Now, we, we sort of idealized shepherd. David is a shepherd. We have the wonderful things about shepherds. Jesus, our good shepherd, God, our shepherd, and all of that. But, but shepherds in the days of Jesus weren't all that well appreciated because, you see, they spent a lot of time with sheep. And, uh, and, and they had to work on the Sabbath even, so they didn't get any smelled and, and all of that. People didn't really care for shepherds that much found out your daughter was dating a shepherd, you went, I don't think you should. But yet when the Son of God came to the earth, it was to the shepherds, these lowly ones in the culture, 
not the kings and princes through whom he was announced. And I think that was the first clue, really, that he's going to come to the likes of the humble. He's going to come to those who don't think they're all that, come to those who realize they haven't got it, they need him. And he says, well, I'll give you, the, I'll give you this illustration right off the bat. I'll announce it first to these to these shepherds. But you know, when Jesus came, it, it should have really been the priests and the teachers of the law that recognized him. Of all the people that really we would expect to recognize him, they should have. And of course, they didn't. Well, you know, when he fed the 5,000, all these people, he fed them with just a little bit of, of, of bread and a little bit of fish, fed all these people. Uh, and rather than stop and worship him, uh, they said, could you do this again? You fill our stomachs again. We're going to make you king so that you fill our stomachs. And he says, you've, you've missed the point. I'm the son of God. There's so much more here than just filling your stomach. Or, or that time that, that, that he was casting out demons and they saw him. And he said, you, they, they said, you must be from Satan. I.e., they really missed it. And even he said to them, he said, really? I'm from Satan? Can a kingdom divided against itself stand? That would really be crazy if I were from Satan casting out demons. If I were from Satan, I'd be bringing them on. And then, of course, there was that man trying to test Jesus who came to him after, and, he, and, and he said it was the greatest commandment. And, and Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. To love your neighbor as yourself and trying to test him, this lawyer said, well then, who's my neighbor? Jesus told that great story of the Good Samaritan. The point being, however, is that if you're asking that question, you've already disobeyed the commandment. If you're worried about who am I supposed to love, (laughs) you've missed it. Then, of course, there was that man who was born blind. And, and, and he, Jesus really makes new eyes for him. And so the man can see. And, and here's this man who's humble, who's poor, who'd been begging his whole life, who's blind. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they wonder, who could this Jesus be? And he looks at them and says, really? I can see now. And you don't know who can do that kind of thing? (laughs) He's the son of God. Even I know that. (sighs) And then Lazarus, of course, he raises this man, Lazarus, who had been dead for four days. He raises Lazarus from the dead. And their response to that is that they decide they want to kill Jesus. Really? You want to kill the guy that can raise the dead? How much sense does that make? And then he raises the dead. Shouldn't that tell you something about him? Shouldn't that humble you in his presence? Shouldn't that cause you to bend your knee before him? We, thinking ourselves wise, really make ourselves to be fools. And and, and we are that way in the face of the cross. The cross is is the folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So he says, where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, that is its wisdom, it pleased God 
through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand, us, demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, this is the very power of God to save. Why? It's the very power of God to save because it breaks the power of sin and death that holds us in bondage that we can't break. And it's the wisdom of God because he's the only one who could figure out how to do it. We think we can do it. God knows we can't. How can it be done? Well, if God is just, we know he must condemn us in our sin. Thus, we're stuck. And if the wages of sin is eternal death, that is death forever, then then, then we're really stuck. We can't even pay it off because we'll never end paying it off. But he sends one like us, yet who has no sin who voluntarily takes our sin upon him, worth us all this one, Jesus, and he pays it for us. He conquers sin and death, you see. The wisdom and the power of God. Not only that, as Mary sings this song, she realized not only does he scatter the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, but he's brought down the mighty from their thrones. That is, for, for, for our great power and our great strength, he destroys that. He says, do your best and you'll still fail. And then not only that, he says, and the rich he has sent away empty. No matter how much you have, it won't be enough. You remember that sad, really, figure in the New Testament, the man we call the rich young ruler, he came to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what's the law say? And he rehearses all the part of the law that we're to love one another. And the man, and Jesus says, go and do that. And the man said, I've done that. And then Jesus catches him up and he says, all right, one thing you lack. Sell all that you have and give to the poor and come and follow me. Because he says, really, it isn't about what you have that makes you right with God. It isn't all the possessions that you have that makes you right with God. That's not the point of it. The point of it is me following me. Are you willing to give that up? Do you realize that nothing that you have makes you right with God? And the man went away sad, the scripture says, because he loved his stuff. Because that was his security. He says, oh, I'm rich That's my identity. That's who I am. And so he sends the rich away. Why? Because they haven't enough in their riches to bring peace in their own lives, peace even, if you will, on earth. Only Jesus. So it was the night that Jesus was betrayed as he was with his, his disciples. They knew it was going to be a big night, you know, all had been prepared. Jesus meets with them at this time. Table set. 
It's a reminder, really, of deliverance. It's a reminder, really, of God being Savior. It's a reminder of that time when God delivered, rescued, saved his people from the bondage in Egypt. So that's where their mind was. Good place, really, to be, Jesus then surprised them a bit, taking the bread and breaking it. Giving it to them and saying, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. That is, this is the wisdom and the power of God to rescue you, to save you, to break the bondage of sin and death. And in the same way, Jesus took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. Thus, Jesus was saying, this this cup is my blood because I've come to rescue you. You can't do that. You can't do that any more than Your ancestors could have broken the bondage of slavery in Egypt. You're in it. You are the problem. I've come to be the solution. Trust me. And and, and I come to be the solution to really really do something. You know, if you owe your banker $100,000 and you go into him and you simply tell him a story about how a mythical figure paid that $100,000 off He's not going to be too excited about that. So Jesus said, this is real. I'm going to do something here. I'm going to do something that has to be done. I'm going to to do something that has to be done that you can't do. And I'm going to do something that has to be done that you can't do. And I'm going to do it for you so that it will be done. The debt needs to be paid. I will pay it. That debt that needs to be paid, you owe. I will pay it for you. And I will bring peace then between you and God. And that will bring ultimately peace with each other. And he says, I want you to behold this. I want you to see it. Mary would say, magnify the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me, for us, that we would get that. And on this morning, and throughout the rest of our lives, that we would get, yes, I'm not the solution here. I'm the problem. Jesus is the solution. That he is indeed the wisdom of God. Father, I pray that you would humble us to realize that throughout the course of human history, our wisdom always fails. It's never enough. never solves the real problem because it can't touch that which is deep within us, our sinfulness. Only you can do that. 
And we thank you that through life, death, resurrection of our Lord Jesus, you've done that. And so I pray that even now, that would be renewed in us. That we would see it and say, yes, I believe. So Father, I pray that you would take this bread and this juice and set it apart in such a way that you would enable us to see this truth of our Lord Jesus, to know that he has come, to know that he has lived, to know that he has died, to know that he has risen, and to know that he is here. Father, that through him we have peace with you, peace with each other. And Father, we look to that day when he will return. And all of this that he has done will be seen and consummated, fulfilled. We'll see it as the kingdom comes in all its fullness. And that will be a day in which, and then for all eternity, that there will be peace on earth and goodwill among all who dwell there. For this we pray, God, in Jesus' name.